Thursday, May 20th, 2010, and you've got Oz in your ears. If you bloggers self-organize and attach yourself like leeches to specific issues, corporations, organizations, challenges, whatever, you will be the intelligence minutemen of this century. There aren't enough guns to kill us all, and Halliburton can't build the jails fast enough to keep us down. Rakers is a board member for NARTH, the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality, a group that says it helps people with, quote, unwanted homosexual attractions. But Lucian also says for the trip to Madrid and London, he was to give Rakers what Lucian called sexual massages every day. He basically got excited. That was the whole case. So he wanted you to touch him? Well, yeah. This model says the bra with straps tied to plastic pots and a water hose with seedlings acting as a belt adds a contemporary touch. The bra fits much better than it looks. Bradley Byrne was a Democrat. Now he's a Republican. On the school board, Byrne supported teaching evolution, said evolution best explains the origin of life, even recently said the Bible is only partially true. Hey, Radio Free Oz. Uh, I'm your host, Peter Bergman. Uh, and uh, as we shift from Taurus into Gemini, my co-host, David Oz. I'm here. I'm here. Yes, that's right. The double <laughs> twins. The double talk. That's right. The double talk. But well, it's kind of like you and me here. We're sort of Jim, Jim, ish here. Geminians, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're both fire signs, of course. Yeah. And we're both Sagittarians. And there you go. And Gemini is the opposite of our sign. If you believe in stro- in astrology, and I haven't made up my mind about that, I, I don't really think that planets that are millions and millions of miles away are in- influencing my love life and my career. Well, what, what about think? but what about the moon? Yeah, what about the moon? Yeah, well, that's, yeah the, that's certainly influencing your internal tides. Pete. Yeah, no, I, no, I know, and, and there are there are surgeons who will not operate on certain phases of the moon because it in, induces bleeding. That I know. That, and you know, Mercury only recently came out of retrograde. So if everybody had a lot of uh, communication problems, what? 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 Yeah, over the last month or so, it was uh, let's see, I think it went off on the thirteenth, something like that, of of May. Uh, 12th, it's been uh, in retrograde for a long time, which means I've personally lost oh, a lot of work along the way because I'm just in the communication business. Yeah, that's true. Now now I'm communicating more, but it's not all good news. Well, you just have Maybe to take the it the way it comes. It. Yeah. it certainly hasn't had an influence on Radio Free Oz because this show has been roaring along now for how long, Pete? Well, let's see. I think we're, as of this show, mm-hmm. we're entering our fifth week. We've been around five days a week for a month. We're getting awfully real, aren't we? Ah, let's see. Well, I don't know. i got to check my muons. Uh, looking for a condominium that you call your own? Try Tudor Nightmare Village, vision of chicken cooperative builders. Uh, located picturesquely atop beautiful Mount Windburn, overlooking the site of the soon-to-be-constructed slag-heap nuclear energy plant. You're within striking distance of the factory and a stone's throw from the asphalt quarry and within a breathtaking view of absolutely everyone. So rest in peace, rest in complete insecurity. You're locked in bed each night by our bondage staff of armed minds. And there's an active social life, too, and parties with the Socialist Party meetings every Thursday in the basement. So for two-door, four-door, more-door apartments, let's go to Tudor Nightmare Village. Uh, We'll be right back. Delicate coral reefs already have been tainted by plumes of crude oil spewing into the Gulf of Mexico, including a sensitive area that federal officials had tried to protect from drilling and other dangers. 
And marine scientists are worried that even more of a problem is that the deep sea reefs could be damaged as the thick goo creeps into two powerful gulf currents. The oil has seeped into areas that are essential to underwater life, and the reefs tend to be an indicator of sea health. When creatures in the reefs thrive, so do other marine life. And we know it's difficult to thrive in oil, of course. We have been thriving in an oil-soaked culture for a hundred years, but then we're not fish. The loop current could carry oil from the spill east and spread it about 450 miles to the Florida Keys. Uh-oh. While the Louisiana coastal current could move the oil as far west as central Texas. I suppose that when it gets to Texas, then we'll really hear some, some outcries. You know, as long as it doesn't get to Texas, I don't think the Texans care. The depth of the gushing leaks and the use of more than 580,000 gallons of chemicals to disperse the oil, including unprecedented injections deep in the sea, have helped keep the, the crude beneath the, uh, Beneath the sea surface, officials report that more than 390,000 gallons of chemicals are stockpiled. Oh, stockpiled, ready to go. That's that military idea again, you know. We got the stuff stockpiled, we're ready to shock and awe that gulf. Marine scientists say diffusing and sinking the oil helps protect the surface species and the Gulf Coast shoreline, but increases the chance of harming deep sea reefs. Well, if you can't see it, who cares? Researchers and computer models show oil has already entered the loop current that could carry the toxic goo toward the Keys, the third longest barrier reef in the world. The oil is now over the western edge of the roughly 61-mile expanse of 300 to 500-foot-deep reefs south of Louisiana, known as the Pinnacles, about 25 miles north of where the Deepwater Horizon exploded April 20th, killing 11 people, let's not remember, 11 people lost their lives, and starting the spill that indeed, as we speak, grows by the hour. And we're not even sure how much is coming out by the hour. We think 30,000 gallons, some say 20,000 gallons. BP says, well, it's just a leak. The Pinnacles is one of nine coral banks and hard bottom areas stretching from Texas to Florida that the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration tried in 2008 to get designated as a marine sanctuary, right? Uh, this sanctuary would have restricted fishing and oil drilling around the identified reef islands, but the plan was put on hold after vehement objections from Republican lawmakers, fishermen, and the oil industry. There's a good triumvirate of social thinking. Let's get Republican lawmakers, fishermen, and oil industry people together and figure out whether or not we should protect the deep sea reefs. Well, meanwhile... A study released by the Center for Public Integrity showed two BP-owned U.S. refineries accounted for 97%, let me repeat that, 97% of all flagrant safety violations found in the refining industry by government inspectors over the past three years. You think it might have put a flag or two up. Hmm, BP responsible for 97% of the flagrant safety violations. Let's see where else. Ooh, look, they're drilling in the Gulf. Well, who cares? The only thing you can conclude, this is a quote, is that BP has a serious safety problem in their company, said Jordan Barab, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Labor for Occupational Safety and Health. Later on, we'll be hearing more from the BP officials who have their own spin on the issue. I can see all the great environmentalists. John Muir is spinning. He's spinning in his grave. Well, David, more news about bomber boy McCain. Uh-oh. Yeah, here we go. Uh-oh. Arizona's religious leaders came to Washington recently to remind John McCain that he used to be on their side in liberalizing immigration laws. 
but they didn't get very far. No. Uh, quote uh, from John. They want comprehensive immigration reform, and I explained to them that we have to secure the borders first, McCain told Politico. All right, that's from which I am quoting. Mm -hmm. I explained to them and showed them, told them about 2008 when I ran for president that my position was we had to secure the borders first. Yeah, and I'm not a maverick, and on and on. <laughs> McCain, who continues to tack rightward on issues where he was once considered a maverick, remains unmoved by pushback on America's immigration law, excuse me, Arizona's immigration laws. Like other Republican incumbents nationwide, he's facing a stiff primary challenge from the right. And the last thing he wants to do is look like he's working with the Democrat, Democrats on immigration reform. God forbid he should look like he's like, there's some sort of comity, but collegiality between him and the Democrats, mm -hmm. and they could work out something as important as immigration. Yeah, he suggested that might be possible a few years back, but hasn't said a word about it recently. No, 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 no. no. The, uh, the, the, the straight talk uh, express has been derailed. And uh, now, uh, the, the danged fence ad that he's running now. That opened the show today. No, it didn't. No? No, next week. Will it open the show next week? Yes, oh, you've played me this scurrilous ad. Well, tell me about it. Well, the dang fence tell everybody ad that, about fit, it. that yeah. fits into, it's a broader yeah. narrative for McCain, yeah. who went from hedging on his public comments to a full-on embrace of his home state harsh new immigration law. His support is a far cry from where he was just two years ago, as you mm -hmm. said, when the immigration reform measure was known as McCain-Kennedy. Right? McCain. Well, Kennedy. Kennedy's gone. What yep. are you going to do? And McCain's not a maverick anymore. So his stance reflects the tough political environment, this election cycle in Arizona, when an overwhelming majority of the state's voters support a new law that requires police to ask people for proof of citizenship if they suspect someone is undocumented, like maybe they got a suntan, you know what I mean, or they don't speak perfect English. Mm -hmm. And yeah. But does bomber boy McCain take take out any time to find out what the impact of this is on the state that he represents? Mm. The law has had a dramatic effect on Latino communities in Arizona. Quote, go and look at the registration levels for kindergarten in the state, says Joseph Rubio, a lead community organizer with the Industrial Areas Foundation. Families are deciding they're not coming back. Church attendance in Spanish-language churches across the state of Arizona have plummeted as a result of the law, said Gary Kinneman, a prominent Phoenix-area evangelical pastor. So obviously McCain is not for religion and family values and for mm. school, which makes him a great Republican. Churches have their own concerns because the law prohibits people from transporting illegal immigrants. What if a church, they say, has a van and is bringing people to church and they're undocumented? Huh? The Reverend Jim Wallace, an activist who heads the group Sojourners, has said many churches intend to ignore the law if it is implemented in July as scheduled. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh my. Well, Arizona's really started something with all of this. And, and they do have a border with 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 Mexico. And it's a porous border. And it's true. There's a tremendous number of undocumented aliens coming through. And I'm the last one to say that that isn't an issue. It's a huge issue. Oh, it's been issue. an issue as long as I can remember because it dates way back in California to when I was a little kid living in California. And it was about the braceros. It was about the people who picked grapes. It was about the people who picked the lettuce in the Central Valleys. Yes, when I was uh, uh, an intern in Washington in the Kennedy administration, ah, and it did, 
Yes, you remember. Yes, I was one of the little cams in Camelot. Uh I worked on the Senate subcommittee on migratory labor, and we were writing laws for Bracero's children so that they could go to school, proper housing, uh, you know, uh, road safety laws, all very simple, fundamental stuff to keep people safe. And the Southern Democrats and the Republicans got together and killed every piece of legislation. So I've seen this before. Yep, it's been a long time trying to deal with the fact that there is there are ag- agricultural needs in addition to those kinds of needs that uh, that we only speak about in what in kind of cliches well they they um take care of our gardens um um you know like the people that are um well they have nice restaurants uh small small little restaurants well they cook all of our food in the cities and they do all of the artisan work that used to be the, the the foundation of you know, the moving to the middle class. All of our grandfathers and great grandfathers and cousins were were plumbers and stone layers and all that sort of stuff was basically American work. Not anymore. Yeah. Well, that that's that's people know that, but they make the assumption that because the aliens are illegal and that they're here, that they've taken somehow the jobs of the people who used to make useless cars somewhere, no, nope. or other products around America that are made somewhere else because of <laughs> the international trade and all of the other reasons. The the how is this problem to be solved, Pete? What do you think? Well, do you think? I'm glad you asked because I don't have an answer. Okay. All I know is that we, it, we, at one point, there was a compassionate George Bush who spoke Spanish and a John McCain who was supposed to be straight-talking and had some sort of sense of a compassionate response to immigration, but that doesn't exist anymore. So somebody, somebody's got to come up with enough love and enough brains to make this work. No, I don't think so, Mr. Bergman. I think I, no, brains, we need, uh, we need that big fence down there, and what we really need here in the in the, in, you know, we stop. Got to stop paying more money because these children. Uh, uh, emergency. Well, I tried to get. I had a boil on my butt. I tried to get some emergency treatment. There's a bunch of illegals in there. I tell you, Mr. Bergman, things you got to change around here. Shake the trees, all angry and confused. Say, how can you fall in love with the 
Politico calls this nightmare on Wall Street. The Wall Street reform bill is taking that rarest of paths through the Senate, actually gaining tougher provisions against the industry as it proceeds, not being watered down to win votes as uh, the health care reform bill was. And that's put Republicans in a difficult spot, where they bloody well belong. They like the bill less with each passing day, but know they risk looking like they're siding with Wall Street if they vote no. Look like they're siding with Wall Street. They are surgically attached to Wall Street. Even top Republicans, such as Senator Judd Gregg of New Hampshire, predict the bill will pass as early as perhaps this week. But it's not clear yet how many Republicans will be willing to sign on to legislation they say falls short in key areas. Democrats know public opinion is on their side and keep pressing their advantage. The latest example uh, is uh, when the vote came up in the Senate uh, last week, 64 to 33 uh, passed an amendment by Senator Dick Durbin that would allow the government to oversee debit card transaction fees. Consumer advocates loved it. The industry hated it because the small fees on millions of card swipes add up to big revenue for ailing banks and, of course, create more ailing consumers. It's getting worse, said one Wall Street official, and it was made much worse by the Durbin vote. Oh, crocodile tears just float down Wall Street. Of course, the situation is provoking smiles at the White House, where officials are quietly thrilled by a political dynamic that's entirely different from the one they faced in the health care debate, in which asking many members to vote for the administration's proposal was asking them to risk their t- careers. So this is what delights them in the White House. In my life, I find other other outlets for delight. Now, Many members of Congress are eager to vote for the Wall Street measure and scrambling to introduce measures to make it tougher. That dynamic is playing out in vote after vote. For example, on credit ratings, now here's the thing on credit rating agencies. The Wall Street establishment watched with horror as senators voted 64 to 35 to upend the traditional way of doing business. Under the old model, firms issuing bonds would pay the rating agencies to grade the offers, which critics called a conflict of interest. You think so? You're paying the people that are rating your services? I don't get it. The new plan would establish a credit ratings board that would stand between issuers and raters determining which agency issues the rating for certain bonds. On an audit the Fed proposal that was once deemed a long shot to be included in the bill, senators voted 96 to 0 to add a compromise plan that would allow the government to audit the actions of the Fed during the 2008 economic crisis, but not its activities generally. That's a great big size 13 government shoe in the federal door, opening up the cavern of the feds. I went to Yale, and at Yale they have these things called secret societies. And at the time it was only guys. And the the most powerful one is called Skull and Bones, to which George Bush Sr. and Jr. belonged. Well, that's what the Fed is, probably filled with Yaleys from Skull and Bones. It's this dark secret chamber that now we're opening up and shedding a bit of light upon. Yeah, it's a nightmare. A nightmare I hope the Fed sweats out every night. If I drove this car in my country, I'd be kidnapped. Caramba! I want a car that smells like me. I'm not an a simple man. I do not need an a simple car. Caramba! I love to drink in the lush, wine-filled interior. 
way the doors lock. I will be buried in this car. Carumba! I love this car. I hate this music. From General Motors, the people who gave you the luxury car and recalled it. Elena Kagan, the country's first female solicitor general. She apparently plays a mean game of softball. She likes to play softball. She likes to play poker. I didn't know this, yeah. but uh, softball bat symbolizes a certain lifestyle. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, what is it? Quote, it is clearly an allusion to her being gay. By the way, a fact, her gayness, the White House denies. A softball gate. The Wall Street Journal adding fuel to the fire, publishing a 17-year-old photo of Kagan playing softball. Are you gay? Please tell us whether your nominee is gay or not. Yeah. It's a legitimate question. But now they're saying that because the woman plays softball, she may be gay. How insane is that? Women's softball has been associated with, uh, with lesbians and being gay for a long time. That's been sort of a signal like two men sunbathing together on a beach or something like that. What? The immediate implication what? is what? that they're gay, and that's all, I've, I've known that for a long time. Yes. You can tell just by looking at her, Greg. Yes, exactly. She can teach you how to hit. Though. Oh, yeah. She's got a good batting stance there, Joe. I'm sure my stance wasn't as good as Elena Kagan's. The elbow is up. You see that elbow? <laughs> this is the most ridiculous conversation. <laughs> This suggests a woman who knows you bring it through down low. It's great form. I don't right. know what that suggests. What, what, what's the mission here by the conservative uh, newspaper uh, doing this? This photo, I think possibly deliberately, though I can't know, it certainly gave the mainstream media an excuse to talk about uh, Solicitor Kagan's you know, sexual orientation. And I'm not going to say anything, but if you go into uh, her office, the Solicitor General, yeah. there are posters of the indigo girls everywhere. <laughs> and I don't, I, mean, I like them too. You ever hear Ghost, that song? It's a great song. And Are we missing a part of this? Now, that, that's just fabulous because leave it to Pat Buchanan to come up with, with the most whacked out take on, on anything. I'm, during the 2008 election, I actually found him rather even-handed, you know? And I thought, well, this is an interesting kind of populist approach. I forgot he was the pitchfork populist, all right? So he's bad on Kagan, right? You pick up a softball bat, you're a lesbian. That's it. In fact, only lesbians are allowed to pick up softball bats in certain of the sporting goods Gee, stores. Gee, I watched you know several seasons of The L Word, and there wasn't a girl with a bat in in any episode of that show, and they were all guaranteed lesbians. They they guaranteed it to, right at the top of the show. Said, Hollywood well, lying again. Really? You mean again. they should have had sort of short, stumpy girls with bats? I won't go there. Okay, now, but <laughs> Pat Buchanan doesn't stop I'm sorry there. About no, no. That. Yeah, go no. ahead. Now he's resurrected another time-honored reason for opposing Ms. Kagan, right? He says, this is quoting him, right? Okay. Indeed, of the last seven justices uh, nominated by Democrats, JFK, LBJ, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama, one was black, it's Marshall, one was Puerto Rican, Sonia Sotomayor, uh, the other five were Jews, Arthur Goldberg, Abe Fortas, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, and Elena K Elena Kagan. <coughs> if Kagan is confirmed, Jews who represent less than 2% of the U.S. population, will have 33% of the Supreme Court seats. Is this the Democrats' idea of diversity? But while leaders in the black community may be upset, the folks who look more like the real targets of liberal bias are white Protestants and Catholics who still constitute well over half the U.S. 
population. Excuse me, I thought that all the guys on the Supreme Court presently were all Catholics. I mean, we may have a historical abundance of, of Jews. Was it 37 percent? No, it would be 33 percent. 33 percent. I think given the educational level that's going on in the United States today, probably 33 percent of the Jews in the country are smarter than, than anybody else at the I moment. Don't, I don't know. I, a couple of things that were said. Remember, we did, a, we did a whole thing on why there was no Protestant being put up for the Supreme Court. One, because the evangelical Protestants have been using kind of talking in tongues rather than working through law books. Yeah, and, it's not like going to school and getting an education and, and figure, I mean, why have we no Korean Supreme Court justices yet? Because I don't know. Well, I don't know I don't either. Know. I don't know It'll either. come. There it'll are, happen. There, there, there are, you know, maybe we should repack the Supreme Court. So, you know, every language that the American ballot is translated into, the ones you can't read, yep. is this Burmese, honey? I can't read this one. You know, then every one of those languages there, we'd have that on the Supreme Court. There's 105 it. separate languages spoken in the Los Angeles School District, 105 people on the Supreme Court. Now, there's a nightmare. I've got Scott Wilde on the phone. How you doing out there in Bismarck, North Dakota, my man? Things are going great, Peter. Yeah, they sure are. Let me give a little background on on, on how right. we're working together. Uh, we put Oz, Radio Free Oz, up um, in late March. Pretty much we wanted to get it up there. We wanted to get the show out. We wanted it to look good. Well, it's a good-looking site, and the show's working, but it really isn't what I would call a real professional or, or full-service site. So we got together with Scott, we got Phil Fountain, and we got Tom Gedwillow, the whole Oz team, and Dave Maloney working on this, and we're going, to, we're going to really put Oz over the edge. So here's what I want to talk about, Scott. If we were starting right from the beginning, and this is for people who will be facing the same situation themselves, how, do we get this, how would we get this going under the best possible circumstances? Well, let's talk a little bit about what we're doing with um, Radio Free Oz. You know, we've got the site. You've already launched it, so you, you've, in essence, stuck your flag in the ground, and, and you've launched. And, and that's really important is to sometimes just take action and get it going. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing with the brand-new site is that we are going back now, and we're really assessing who the audiences are. And when I say audiences, I mean more than one audience. You know, there, there might be partners. or there might Obviously, there's people listening to the show right now. But there are also people that may be interested in being interviewed on this show at some point or partners that may want to sponsor the show at some point. Um, you know, so that we're identifying all the audiences and how do we get the information that's of value to them, okay? So what we're doing is we're actually kind of going back now and we're creating the site map. Um, we've actually launched a development site, but before we, you know, we've skinned it, and before we get too far into that, we're, we're now, like our, our conference call that we had last night with Phil Fountain and Tom Gadwello and yourself and I, you know, we, we started talking about what is it that we want this site to do and, and what kinds of interactions do we want people to have or experiences do we want them to have so that we can really make sure that that exists not just even on the home page but it exists deep within the site so when they're in looking at the show archives or looking at specific segments um, and, and even what segments th those might be. You know, when we talked about uh, delivering each of these individual segments of the show separately as, as an option or, or the possibility of a premium site, you know, coming up. So what, what is a value and, and how do they want to consume that? Where do they want to consume that? So it's really important that we are doing the process we're doing now of just actually building that site map and just sort of gaffing those ideas with a pen, getting them on paper, 
and or digital paper, I guess the, the our online tracking, but so that all the whole team is on the same page and we all understand what is it that this site is going to do and what experiences the user going to have with the site. Once we have that, the development of the, the content is going to be easy. And well, there are some exciting things coming up. Yeah, and one of the things I find exciting is that we're working with this free program called WordPress and it really is intuitive. You know, if you had to do it on your own, you can develop a fairly sophisticated site. The problem is it'll probably look like every other quote sophisticated site that somebody did on their own, but that's okay. But the fact is the tools are there. And when we talk again, we're going to talk about some of the very specific tools that are available to us, okay? That sounds awesome. Okay, talk to you soon. Better living through chemistry? Let's take a look. Children exposed to higher levels of a type of pesticide found in trace amounts on commercially grown fruits and vegetables are more likely to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder than children with less exposure, a nationwide study now suggests, and this is a report from CNN. Researchers measured the level of pesticide byproducts in the urine of 1,139 children from across the United States. Children with above average levels of one common byproduct uh, had roughly twice the odds of getting a diagnosis of ADHD, according to the study, which appears in the journal Pediatrics. So this is not just hearsay. Exposure to the pesticides, known as organophosphates, has been linked to behavioral and cognitive problems in children in the past, but Previous studies have focused on communities of farm workers and other high-risk populations. This study is the first to examine the effects of exposure in the population at large. Organophosphates are designed, quote, to have toxic effects on the nervous system, says the lead author of the study, Mercy Bouchard, PhD, a researcher in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the University of Montreal. That's how they kill pests. The pesticides act on a set of brain chemicals closely related to those involved in ADHD, Bouchard explains. So it seems plausible that exposure to organophosphates could be associated with ADHD-like symptoms. Hey, makes sense to me. I can see the equal sign. Environmental Protection Agency regulations have eliminated most residential uses for the pesticides, including uh, lawn care and termite extermination. So the largest source of exposure for children is believed to be food, especially commercially grown produce. Detectable levels of pesticides are present in a large number of fruits and vegetables sold in the U.S. According to a 2008 report from the U.S. Department of Agriculture that's cited in this study. In a representative sample of produce tested by the agency, 28% of frozen blueberries, 20% of celery, and 25% of strawberries contain traces of one type of organophosphate. Other types of organophosphates were found in 27% of green beans, 17% of peaches, and 8% of broccoli. You just can't get away from it, can you? Although kids should not stop eating fruits and vegetables, buying organic or local produce whenever possible is a good idea, says Bouchard. Yeah, it sure is a good idea. Up here on Whidbey Island, uh, in the grocery stores, there's more and more local produce, and it's organic produce. It don't have no organophosphates on it. I mean, this is an example of the deadly lifestyle that we have inherited 
from the post-World War II period, when we came back and realized that chemicals could give us more of everything and make us bigger, bigger, and bigger. The problem is it's also making us sicker, sicker, and sicker. Organic gardening is not that difficult. If we really encouraged organic gardening on a large level, by that I mean many, many small farms, the price of organic food would come down. Yes, agribusiness as we know right now, which we are supporting with our subsidies, it would be hurt because it cannot live on this kind of realistic, organic, healthy model. We the people have to ask for this. It isn't going to come, you know, out of nowhere. It isn't going to come from enlightened representatives because they're all running out, eating fast food and coming back and voting the wrong way. We have to bring the pressure. It was Dana Lyons that said, look, you've got to start small. You've got to, you've got to work on the area where you have real leverage. And that's your local space, what you buy. Go into your grocery store, go over to whoever brings the food in and say, enough of this, enough of that. I want it organic or I'm going to shop somewhere else. Yeah, no green to you unless you give me the green I want. It's coming. Slowly. Very slowly. To a theater. Well, first of all, don't you think this spill now is, is thought to is going to be in excess of what happened with Exxon Valdez? Let's see if that happens. Let's see if that happens. Well, okay. I mean, but, there's, but a, there's a good question today if you're standing down there on the Gulf, and that is, where's the oil? Where's because the oil? It's not on, except for little chunks of it. You're not even seeing it on the shores but, yet. But there are some new reports that there are greater amounts of it on the ocean oh, floor. Oh, yes, there's, that's true. But you know where the greatest source of oil that seeps into the ocean is? It's from natural seepage from, under, uh, from subterranean deposits. That's where most of it comes from, not from drilling accidents. So what's badly needed here is some perspective on our energy policy and also on the hard realities of what really goes on when it comes to oil spillage. But I think it's going to damage the environment in the Gulf and it's going to damage tourism, going to damage fishing. I don't think there's any question this is in excess of anything that we previously we'll asked the ocean is. to absorb. We'll see if it is. But, right. But the I ocean think, absorbs but a lot, Juan. An awful lot. The ocean absorbs a lot. Yeah, well, there you go. Brett Hume has now joined... Uh, many illustrious people and what I has become a slick idiot in oil. All okay. right, slip me a few slickers. Yeah, as I was talking with uh, Dave Maloney when we first heard this, and he said he must have been to dinner with someone from the industry, and they fed him this <laughs> line about, did you know, Brent, that most of the oil that seeps into the Gulf comes from just normal subterranean seepage, you know, 30,000, 40,000 gallons an hour of that stuff just seeping out. We just we just didn't notice it. No, no. It was like a, you know, it was sort of like a volcano, but, you know. Upside we, down. Upside down or, under the water. We didn't. Where it doesn't quickly. belong. Yeah, it doesn't happen. There, okay, so. we got Brett Hume, right? Yeah. Okay, now we got yeah. Haley Barber, the Republican governor of Mississippi, and mm -hmm. he doesn't think that this is a big problem at he all. He doesn't. Uh, he likened much of the spill to the gasoline sheen commonly found around ski boats. I quote him. 
We don't wash our face in it, but it doesn't stop us from jumping off the boat to ski, Barber said. Uh-huh. Oh, he also suggested- Not in my lake. <laughs> he also suggested <laughs> right it was possible that what happens here will be manageable and of moderate, even minimal impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sort said, of like your garage floor on a, like a leaky yeah, yeah. carburetor or something. He said, yeah, come on down here and play golf, enjoy the beach, catch a fish, and pay a little sales tax while you're here. <laughs> Oh, no, okay. He's not alone. We got Brett Hume, we got Hailey Barber, and also we've got a British Petroleum CEO, Tony Hayward, who has declared that the giant oil spill in the Gulf, still gushing thousands of gallons of oil a day into the sea, and the hundreds of thousands of gallons of dispersant that the BP has pumped into the water Mm. to combat the slick, are tiny compared to the very big ocean. The Gulf of Mexico is a very big ocean. The amount of volume of oil and dispersant we are putting in it is, is tiny in relationship to its total water volume. And we'll fix it, he said. I guarantee the only question is we, we don't know when. Hayward also acknowledged that BP had made some initial mistakes in its response to the, the spill. It was a bit bumpy to get it going. We made a few little mistakes early on and said it's possible that his job might one day be in jeopardy as a result of the spill. Asked if he felt his job was already under threat, he replied, I don't at the moment. That, of course, may change. I will be judged by the nature of the response. Slick idiots in oil. Yeah, there they are. Well, <clears throat> yes, I heard that fellow, it's the British fellow. Uh, I mean, it is the voice of, of BP and the voice of, you know, of one of the most gigantic corporations. I mean, they're, what they're spilling in the ocean is you know is this like their profit margin for the year no is this their profit margin for the hour margin <laughs> you know it's nothing it's just a, it's just the gulf's got some oil into it it's not going to spill on haley barber's front lawn that's what he's telling me huh boy i tell you when it comes down to provincetown and those little those little oil slickers come around Provincetown and start floating around the Cape. I'll tell you, things are going to look a lot different because we out here on the Cape are proud to be liberals and Massachusettsans and, and Cape addicts, and we don't want any southern oil on our beaches. And you just remember that, Governor, okay?
Now, these tea partiers, I like to call them tea baggers because that's how they uh, originally introduced themselves. Well, they proudly proclaim themselves as conservatives, and rightly so. Tea Party protesters repeat the conservative catchwords of Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan, who built their careers fighting the creeping socialism of civil rights legislation, Social Security, and Medicare. Creeping socialism. When I was in college, I was the secretary of the Young People's Socialist League. Sounds pretty red, huh? Well, let me tell you. What we were promoting was right of Bill Clinton today. But I went to see Norman Thomas give a speech in New York at the Unitarian Church, and he walked up on stage slowly in a crouch, and he said, this is creeping socialism. I've always loved that. Tea partiers have also have echoes of a well-known grassroots movement. They echo the John Birch Society of the 1950s and 60s. The JBS organized in upper-middle-class neighborhoods and among business groups for anti-communist and conservative causes, very much like the Tea Partiers. In tone and substance, Tea Partiers even sound like the John Birch Society. When they claim that a modern American president is a communist, it recalls old JBS attacks on communist president Dwight Eisenhower. I saw a sign in one of their gatherings, and it it said Obama, uh, Che Obama, the millionaire socialist president. I tell you, if we drown, we're going to drown in ignorance. Okay, as today's Tea Partiers shout their slogans to end the Federal Reserve, abolish the Internal Revenue Service, and restore the gold standard, they seem to be lifting a page from the old Birch playbook. Yet commentators resist linking the Tea Partiers with the radical right. Instead, they prefer to call them populists. Exactly what links Tea Partiers and historic populism usually goes unexplained. But part of the logic is that the Tea Partiers have angrily taken to the streets like pitchforking populists of old. But the original population of the 1890s had little to do with the pitchfork stereotype. Populist farmers and workers listened to lectures, they read reform literature, they joined associations, and voted for independent candidates. They rarely marched. Well, there is one exception. It's it's a useful lesson for today. The nation's first march on Washington was in the spring of 1894. The country, like today, was gripped by a terrible depression. Jacob Coxey, an old Ohio populist, led a march of the unemployed, some some of them as far away as the West Coast, to Washington. It was called Coxey's Army, and it arrived in the capital on May 1st. These populists sought to petition Congress for help. With local and state governments in fiscal ruin, like today, only the federal government had the resources to keep millions of working families in their homes. Again, true. Coxie petitioned for a good roads bill to create jobs and build the infrastructure of prosperity. Makes sense to me. Now, let's turn to the recent big Tea Party march. The Tea Party Express spent three weeks crossing the country, arriving in Washington on tax day, April 15th. As in 1894, the economy is mired in a deep recession, but the real parallels end right there. The Tea Partiers came to protest federal action. They hate the federal government. They don't understand what it is, but they hate it. Today, local and state governments are hemorrhaging jobs and slashing essential services, yet the Tea Partiers are boiling mad because of the stimulus bill, which meant to stop the bleeding, has failed. They are punishing politicians who supported it, like Bob Bennett, Utah's conservative GOP senator, 84% conservative rating, and he's out. The Tea Partiers are more concerned about possible inflation in the future than with the current ordeal of the unemployed. Yes, they are 
passionless. What, what, what did uh, Bush call himself? A compassionate conservative? These people have zero compassion. The one issue that unites this diverse coalition is hostility to federal spending to create jobs. That's it. Don't you dare give me health reform and don't you dare create a job. Most Tea Party supporters also tell pollsters that too much has been made of problems facing blacks. This is striking, given given how much the Bush and Obama administrations have tiptoed around the economic catastrophe that's hit black America during this financial meltdown. In much of the country, the jobless rate in black communities is at Great Depression levels, 27% in Michigan and nearly 19% in the District of Columbia. So when the Tea Partiers say they are true conservatives, there is no reason to doubt them. They stand in the conservative tradition of the radical right, a movement of the haves and the well-protected, who since the time of FDR have feared that their freedom will be lost if the government extends a hand to the have-nots and the unprotected. And there's more nutcase news. The Texas State Board of Education has an arch-conservative board member named Don McLeroy, a real teabagger who's proposing a new set of changes that read like a Tea Party manifesto. The new arrangement would require high school history students to, quote, discuss alternatives regarding long-term entitlements such as Social Security and Medicare, given the decreasing worker-to-retiree ratio, and also evaluate efforts by global organizations to undermine U.S. sovereignty. Well, that sounds like a good idea. Let's get the civics class to figure out an alternative to Medicare and Social Security, and then let's try and savage the UN while we're at it. These, as he quotes, threats of global government to individual freedom and liberty include the votes of the UN General Assembly, the International Criminal Court, the UN gun ban proposal, forced redistribution of American wealth to third world countries, and global environmental initiatives. This is ignorance on parade. Now, I initially dismissed the issue of the teabaggers. I thought, these are just hairballs. But they're not. They are, I believe, threatening. I'm beginning to feel very uneasy about those, these folks. They're armed. They know people who are armed. They are playing on the ignorance of America, which is boiling under all of, the, all of the distress that we're suffering. I mean, Sarah Palin is a perfect example. As I say, she'll be the first fascist to win a beauty contest. Uh, I, I am concerned. The only good news is that they're not evangelical Christians, so you can't pu- put these two, you know, forces together and get critical mass. But that's the only good thing about them that I can see. Uh, early on, when we be- became familiar with the life of the astronauts, we discovered that one of the things they took up into space was tang. You know, that, that was one of the few things they could drink up there. But mm-hmm. there's a tang I like a lot better. Yeah, it's the Tang Dynasty. And here's a poet from uh, that era so many, many, many hundreds of years ago. A long time. A long time. Li Ho. Li Ho. His name was, and it still remains because poems never die. Here's one uh, on the moons of the months. This is the third moon, the moon for May. East wind blowing. Spring fills our eyes. City in bloom. The willows weep in earnest, breeze in the palace halls and rustling the bamboo. New clothes, bright green, clear as water. A brilliant wind ripples fields mile after mile. Mist and cloud join heaven and earth. 
The concubines dress like soldiers and paint their eyebrows thick. Red banners warm the streets. The fragrance drifts away down meandering river as pear blossoms scattered in the park make us think of fall. Ah, yes, the concubines dressing as soldiers, but I think we'll come to real world harmony when the soldiers start dressing like concubines. I'm with you, Pete. That's Radio Free Oz for today, Oz Team. Uh, I'm your host, Peter Bergman. David Osmond, my co-host. John Cumming, our ones and zeros man. Phil Fountain, our designer. Tom Goodwillow, uh, our webmaster. Dave Maloney is our audio engineer. Bill McIntyre, the producer. And Scott Wilde is our social media guru. Be posting at you soon. <laughs>